Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Right, welcome to the show. I'd like to begin today's episode with a bit of a thought experiment. I'd like you to imagine a state in which the government's highest ranking police official has the power to suspend any laws passed in Congress or Parliament with a stroke of a pen and to conduct warrantless searches and seize any property deemed necessary. Imagine a citywide curfew. 8 p.m. to 5 a.m., the streets patrolled by police and members of the National Defense Force in military fatigues marching alongside them to enforce mandatory stay-at-home orders. Imagine having to carry government papers with you when you left your home and to produce them on demand for any government official that requests them or face a $5,000 on-the-spot fine. Picture the state leader coming on television and, when questioned about food rationing and shortages at the grocery stores during peacetime, looking directly at the cameras and saying, while I can't promise you'll get what you want, you will get what you need. Did you get that, citizen? Not what you want, or desire, or even deserve, but what you need, as defined and decided by your ministerial overlords. Now, maybe you're thinking I'm talking about Belarus, sometimes known as Europe's last dictatorship, which has been in the news a bit lately, and for all the wrong reasons. Or perhaps you're conjuring up images of some third world disaster zone, war-torn, where the rule of law has long been lost to the rule of the jungle, and where life has descended into something nasty, brutish and short, as Hobbes would have it. Something akin to what the media likes to call a failed state. Although one might argue such a description is actually the fullest expression of the state, where citizens' rights and civil liberties are stamped out by that giant Orwellian jackboot, and in which peaceful individuals are treated like property of the state to be harassed, harangued, and corralled at whim. Presumed guilty, in other words, until proven innocent. But as you might have guessed, this is not Lukashenko's Belarus. It's not Draco's Athens. It's not even Myanmar or Saudi Arabia or Ghana or any of the other countries that routinely rank among the world's most corrupt. I'm actually talking about my own country of birth, liberal, pluralistic, democratic, wealthy, first world, Australia, the self-styled lucky country. This is the state of affairs in Melbourne. Australia's second largest city and home to one in five Aussies. And it will remain the case there, at least for the next month. The Institute of Public Affairs, a free market think tank, has gone so far as to call this 
the greatest incursion into our basic liberties ever on Australian soil. Now, under the powers invoked by the Emergency Act of 1986, Victoria's Premier can declare a state of disaster if there is a, quote, significant and widespread danger to life or property in Victoria. The catalyst for this lockdown under, which effectively placed millions of law-abiding citizens under immediate house arrest, was the predictable uptick in COVID-19 cases. So how many are we talking about, you might be wondering? Well, on the day that we recorded this episode, Australia as a country, young and free with golden soil for wealth and toil as the anthem goes, recorded 231 new cases of COVID-19 and nine fatalities. That's the whole nation. For context, that's roughly the same number of cases recorded that same day in the state of Rhode Island. In fact, America's smallest state has more than twice the total COVID-19 deaths as the entire nation of Australia. And yet, these phase four disaster measures, as implemented by Premier Daniel Andrews' Victorian government, are estimated to cost the state something in the vicinity of 400,000 jobs. One in six businesses expects never to reopen, and lost wages and commercial activity runs into the multi-billions each and every week. You might wonder if this is really commensurate to the perceived threat, which, given the measures, must be catastrophic if not existential. But if this can happen in Australia, what's to stop it from happening in your country should a second or third or fifth wave of this virus actually hit? In fact, a similar scenario is already unfolding across the ditch, as they say, in New Zealand, where four COVID-19 cases were detected after more than 100 COVID-free days. The country's largest city was immediately put under lockdown, and the rest of the country placed on high alert. In fact, the general election there has even been postponed. That's four cases. Is that all that really stands between us and nationwide suspension of liberties, in what again is considered a fairly liberal Western democracy. Just how precariously are our liberties perched here, not only vis-a-vis the pandemic itself, but in the face of meddling do-gooders who would never let a good catastrophe go to waste and who would happily use it to smuggle in the very ugliest authoritarian impulses. Australian and New Zealand are, if you like, the canaries down the COVID coal mines, and they are swooning. Now that global precedents are being set and reset, what, if anything, can you do to protect yourself from both the economic as well as the political fallout? I recently caught up with Dan Denning, a longtime friend and one-time Melbourne resident, to discuss the situation in his old stomping ground. That financial freedom is an aspect of personal freedom. And, you know, that's traditionally been part of the appeal of gold is that, it, you know, there's, there's economic liberty and there's political liberty. And both of those liberties are under attack right now. So even if uh, you're not convinced that gold is the best way to preserve your economic and political independence, you better look for something because the attack is real and it's picking up. 
Now, Dan is the co-author of the Bonner-Denning letter along with Bill Bonner, and so I made sure to get his take on the financial markets, gold's record run over the past couple of months, and just what he thinks about living in the era of multi-trillion dollar tech giants. My conversation with Dan, up next. Mr. Dan Denning, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot for making the time, mate. How are you doing up there in uh, in Colorado? Yeah, doing good. Keeping an eye on lots of interesting stuff that's happening in the financial markets and in the world. So um, I'm happy to be back. Well, why don't we start then with, uh, with the former uh, and maybe you can give us a bit of an update on what you're keeping your eye on in the markets at present. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on right now, and you know, it fits in with what we've been following. That that uh, with massive intervention from the central banks, the market would be lower already, uh, and the economy would have started to recover. But in the uh, you have really the opposite going on, where market is at or near an all-time high with the S and P 500. So not only is it up year to date, um, but it's almost up uh, past where it was in February before uh, before the whole COVID thing hit. So you got a new high on the S&P. You've got Apple, which is close to a $2 trillion market cap, but is selling bonds, buying back stock. And in fact, the Fed is buying Apple bonds, and then Apple is uh, rumored to be reintroducing a, or introducing a business model where it bundles its services. So when I look at all that stuff, I think, okay, here you have a market that was mostly driven by liquidity. Uh, and you have investors who are mostly driven by getting out of government bonds and into risk assets. So uh, all those themes, all the, that analysis seems to have reached a, uh, it's either a false summit <laughs> and we'll see higher highs or there, there's a sort of peak that's being reached here. So I think you, you always depend on the price action to tell you uh, what's going on. But if we're correct, then this is a sort of a peak in the, uh, absurdity of the uh, intervention in markets where you see a $2 trillion company, a new high on the S&P 500, negative real yields uh, in U.S. government bonds. And uh, and then, yeah, here we are. So it's a, it's a really interesting inflection point right now. Right. And so how do you uh, individually see this kind of detachment between what's happening on, as they say, on Wall Street and on Main Street? Because uh, I'm guessing for a, a large swaths of the of the U.S. economy and elsewhere, when their dear leaders are, are pointing to highs in the S&P, for example, they're looking at their day-to-day reality and, and they're probably seeing something very different. Well, you would think so. I, I mean, the jobless data has been one of the interesting things to keep an eye on during all of this because that's the most... That is Main Street, you know, the people mm-hmm. who are not necessarily stock owners, but they're wage earners and they've lost their jobs. So the, the new jobs claims came out this week, uh, as they do every week. And for the second week in a row, they were under a million, uh, which, yeah, which is a, a sign of the times that it was 996 or 963,000, according to the Labor Department. And, uh, well, you know, there's two things that are interesting about that. One is that this was the first week after the uh, extra unemployment benefits of the $600 extra expired. So it's quite possible from, from a rational point of view that the, there were people who were willingly unemployed in order to make more money than they could have made going back to work. And of course, mm-hmm. they may not have wanted to go back to work because of the perceived risk. 
Um, but that's an actually pretty rational market response that if you take away free money to not work, fewer people are unemployed. They go back to work because they have to start earning money again. But, you know, in the long term, uh, a lot of people have been displaced by the policy response to the virus and they're, they don't care that the S&P 500 may be making a new high. And th this is where the Fed is utterly ridiculous in saying that it's not responsible for inequality. You know, the, the definition of moral hazard is when people don't suffer from negative consequences uh, of their decisions because, um, because they, they, they're, the, they're someone who's, who's shielding them from those consequences. So, mm -hmm. so they end up taking more, they end up taking more risk than they, than they, than they're actually, than, than they're aware of, I suppose is the way to describe it. So I, I think that's what's going on right now. The, the people who have the most risk are the people who are in Main Street and have to go to work and earn a living. Meanwhile, the Fed seems to be looking out for financial asset owners. And if you look at valuations, basically as a the Buffett indicator, where you look at total market cap as a percentage of GDP, a lot of people think that's old fashioned, but really it's, it's, it's a measure of financial assets versus the real economy or Wall Street versus Main Street. And in that regard, two interesting things happened again this week. One, at a global level, uh, the global market cap is now 100% uh, of GDP. And the, the last time it was that was uh, in 2007. Anything interesting happened right around there in 2007, 2008? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's not a timing indicator for traders, it's a, it's a, but it's a valuation tool. And in the U.S., it's at 170%. So, it, you know, X, X, X the rest of the world, the U.S. has been in massive bubble territory. But that, again, makes sense with the analysis that we've been providing in the Bonner-Denning letter. And Bill Bonner writes about it and, and Tom Dyson writes about it as well, that, that when interest rates are this low, people move into either really aggressive risk assets like, like growth stocks, like Apple, like Amazon, which is mm -hmm. why these stocks are now so massive, or they move into alternative assets like uh, gold, which went over $2,000 and corrected and is, is now in that range, or, or other things which uh, like Bitcoin and, and things that are outside the financial system. So yeah, there's a lot going on right now, and yeah. it's all kind of in concert with, with what we've talked about. So it's a pretty interesting month so far. Yeah, indeed. And uh, just getting back to those signs of the times, I know you mentioned uh, a little earlier in a kind of private email that you sent around to the, the Bonner Private Research Group, just how flabbergasted you were at the fact that the US uh, government is currently borrowing a trillion dollars or thereabouts, give or take a few tens of billions uh, per quarter now. I mean, that's, that's just unfathomable. If you had mentioned that a year ago, people would have thought, you know, there's, there's absolutely no way that that can go on. And we don't know how long it can go on for, but, um, you know, our, I, I was doing a little bit of mental math the other day. Our mammalian brains are generally not uh, equipped to deal with numbers that large. You know, we deal with tens, hundreds, thousands, maybe millions if we're lucky. But if you were to count to a trillion, counting one number every second, it would take you almost 32,000 years uh, to count to the number one trillion, which gives some indication as to uh, as to how many dollars that the US are borrowing each and every quarter. So how long, I guess the million dollar or the trillion dollar question is how long can that go on for? And, and what are the likely impacts uh, of that on the greater economy? Yeah, well, that is a big question. It's a great question. I, I mean, 
in the previous issues of the newsletter, what I've argued is that we've kind of crossed a threshold uh, and there were two signposts on that threshold to mix a metaphor. It was unlimited government and unlimited money. And if you wanted unlimited government, so if you wanted the government to do everything, to pay everyone's wages, to build things, to fight wars, you know, huge warfare state, huge welfare state, then you, the traditional method of financing that through borrowing um, was prohibitive. There was a taboo that we have had in place for a long time of, of large deficits and large debt. But, you know, the total federal debt is over 26 trillion. The deficit for this year uh, is already over three trillion or near three trillion, and spending is near six trillion, both both of which are records. So there seems to be uh, that this taboo has been broken clearly. So the is there a uh, is there a physical Newtonian financial type of limit on government borrowing? <laughs> well, it, you know, no, I don't think so. The sense that the United States is a world's reserve currency and the Fed can can create money from nothing to buy government bonds if it wants to. But the, the limit is really psychological when people begin to see or sense that um, the money isn't real, the finance isn't real, and that uh, it's going to wipe out the value of their savings. It's going to wipe out the value of their pension. It's going to wipe out eventually the value of their equities if the stock market crashes. That's a psychological phenomena, and mm-hmm. it's a mass psychological phenomena. And people begin to look for what I think you, in the security industry, they call them pre-incident indicators. These are, <laughs> mm-hmm. so they're exactly what it sounds like. That <laughs> does what it says on the tin. On the box. Yeah. <laughs> so, and you know, inflation is generally one of those. And, and when the Fed says that CPI, consumer price inflation, is not high, that doesn't that doesn't match the experience of people who are paying rent mm. and buying food and fuel. Uh, so, and in fact, the Fed has said in the last month that it's it's determined to engineer 2% inflation and people in the real world who have lost their jobs, who might not be able to pay their rent, struggling to pay their mortgage. I guarantee you that they, they see plenty of inflation and not just right. in stock prices. So, so the limit on, on the size of government is, uh, is, what is the phrase they use in cinema? The willing suspension of disbelief. You know, <laughs> the, the, if we believe that we can pay for, that we can live at each other's expense, as Frederick Bastiat said, or that we can pay for anything by borrowing an infinite amount of money and never repaying it, well then, gosh, we would have invented something that nobody in the world has ever done before and we should all be much happier about it. But I think when people realize that that's just not possible, then you start to see um, one some political pushback and and then two some financial pushback where mm-hmm. bond yields rise and investors flee to to what they would consider safer assets. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I I guess it's kind of a an emperor has no clothes on moment of collective realization that uh, precipitates the unraveling of that. Uh, and and as you say, if we could print money to pay for you know, the, the welfare, warfare state uh, forever ad infinitum, then we'd have places like Zimbabwe and down here in Argentina would be the richest places on the planet, um, which is clearly not, not the case. 
No, <laughs> just to, to jump into um, into you know big government and uh, you know funding these massive intrusions into civil liberties and you know cradle to grave care, etc. This the pandemic seems to have provided almost the perfect cover for the kinds of intrusions that you and I have been very wary about for uh, well since we started writing these uh, these newsletters, but. I'm particularly interested in the case uh, down in my home country of Australia uh, and neighbouring New Zealand right now, which have really kind of gone off the deep end with regards to draconian measures um, in order to fight what they evidently see as, uh, you know, some existential threat um, to their to their democracies. Um, I know you spent a lot of time in Melbourne. Are you surprised by what's happening there? Uh, I mean, first of all, we should maybe give a little bit of a of, of context, but do you want to kind of outline what's happening in Melbourne and uh, across the ditch in Auckland, and then we'll kind of unpack the uh, respective responses by those governments? Yeah, I can try. I mean, I, I, I'm limited by uh, what we're told, and uh, increasingly I believe almost none of that. So, <laughs> um, but but the government has the governments in both countries and the state government in uh, Victoria where I used to live in Melbourne for for almost 10 years they have been pretty clear about what their um, policy goals are and what their intentions are so uh so you saw an uptick in in the number of um infections and covid positive cases in Australia and especially in Melbourne and uh so in response the government uh, the state government led by the premier Daniel Andrews instituted stage four of a lockdown, which by the way, didn't even exist three or four months ago. They're making this up. (laughs) Right. Making up as they go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No one knows what's in stage five, you know, Uh, but um, so they were pretty, pretty astonishing though. A curfew from 8 PM to 5 AM, a prohibition on traveling more than five kilometers from your house, unless it was to go to work uh, or to give care or receive care, which is strange. And then, um, uh, and and really uh, a closure of uh, all but what the government considers essential businesses, again, which is which is inc- which is conveniently itself. I noticed that no politicians were retrenched uh, during this stage four state of disaster, and actually uh, a handful of them received pay raises just to rub salt into the injury for the general population, who lost something like four hundred thousand jobs, and you know one in six businesses is expected to go under, et cetera, et cetera. So. Uh, I noticed yeah. that we're not really all in it together, as they like to remind everyone. No, no. And of course, there could be no order in civil society unless the government was ordering us around. So, mm. I, you know, that seems to be the rationale for for not furloughing uh, the civil service or public servants who who you would think would have a lot less work to do right now. But uh, in any case, uh, it was a six-week lockdown in Melbourne and then in, in New Zealand, which had been 100 days virus-free, according to reports. They reported a cluster, an outbreak. It makes it sound like an alien invasion. And, and uh, in response to that, the government immediately ordered Auckland, New Zealand's largest city, over a million and a half people, where I stayed last year for two months, back into level four. And then you have discussions in both New Zealand and Victoria of extending that to, in New Zealand's case, the entire country and in, until October. And in, in, um, in Melbourne's case, or in Victoria's case, not just Melbourne, but regional Victoria. So smaller cities like Geelong, Ballarat, where there's been, uh, or Bendigo as well, where, where there hasn't been as many um, cases. 
So, you know, that's the, that's the facts of the matter. And, but, but I think what, what you're seeing, and this is to your original question, is kind of the full flourishing of uh, the authoritarian government mind that uh, the only, you know, the only way to control everything is, is to kill everything. So, you know, I'm, I mean that in economic terms, and it was that, that uh, infamous and actually misquoted phrase from the Vietnam War where CBS News uh, purported to quote a U.S. commander saying that in order to save the village, it was necessary to destroy the village. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out the quote is apocryphal. It may or may not have been said. But, but I think it, it accurately describes what uh, the response is of people who've never run a business, have no real respect for civil liberties, uh, and really no respect for individual rights because by nature or by acquisition or by sentiment, they're collectivists, they're centralizers, and they're authoritarians. And they have seen this as a pretext to get in between all private consensual relationships, whether that's uh, strangers who have sex and can no longer do so, or whether it's something a little more pedestrian, like small businesses offering their goods and services to people in their neighborhood. The the people in Victoria and the government in, in New Zealand have said, well, because of this pandemic, we're now going to get in the middle of all of those relationships and completely shut them down. And we're going to either mediate them or we're, or we're going to, we're going to smash them in the name of public health. And I guess I'm not surprised by that because I think the longer you study what I call the authoritarian mind, the, that's the logical fulfillment of that idea. But I just didn't think it was something that was going to happen suddenly. I thought it was going to happen gradually. What the pandemic seems to have done is it seems to have been a catalyst to all the worst political impulses in the diseased Western mind. And that's, that's in my mind, even more... Uh, disturbing and, 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 uh, and disquieting than the fact that there are 20 million people who have COVID. Right. Yeah. It seems, uh, going back to what you said about, um, destroying the village to save the village. It, it reminds me a little bit of, um, of Jacinda Ardern, who's the, the prime minister in, in New Zealand at the moment has called for, a, um, a postponement uh, potentially of the general election there. So one gets to thinking that maybe her idea is that we need to, uh, in order to save democracy, we need to postpone it, or at least until she gives further notice that that it's back on the table again. Yeah, and just just a little coda on that, that, that how dis- disgraceful the Western media has been in covering all this mm. from, a, from a political point of view is that they have, and I'm, I'm no supporter at all of Donald Trump, but all the things he's been accused of, uh, suspending an election, closing the border, um, mm. you know, harming the economy. Those are things she's actually done. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she's actually suspended civil liberties, closed the border, and that is now talking about not having an election. But she is, is held up as a paradigm of the uh, anti-Trump, progressive social justice big government hero right. uh, and she's being she's being paraded or or the media is creating a narrative where she uh, she represents all those virtues mm. and uh, it's just a, astonishing 
Yeah, I think highest job approval rating in, of any prime minister in New Zealand's history. I think some some outrageous um, outrageous level of support, which, as you correctly point out, were that to be on the other side of the aisle, uh, were those actions to have been perpetrated by her political opponents, uh, you know, that would have been howling from the rooftops. Which really just goes to show that um, we were talking just before the show about that the idea of the false dilemma where. The, the sort of hoi polloi are presented uh, from up on high with two just extremely unpalatable um, decisions uh, to, or options rather, you know, the old Greek, do you want to be gored by the, the bull's right horn or by the left horn? It's your choice. Um, and then parading that around as if it's actually a free choice. Well, how about no, gored by no horn at all, please, sir. Um, so whether or not you, you know, you've, you, are in the Trump camp or the Ardern camp, which are polar presented as polar opposites, you're really, you know, kind of in the same boat, getting the same treatment. Yeah, well, it's it's never popular to to say it during an an, an emergency or what people perceive as an emergency, and you know, it 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 is affecting people unequally, as you said. We're not we are not all in this together. There are geographic differences. There's urban rural differences. And there's income differences for people who are able to work from home. They're quite comfortable. They get their food delivered. They can buy things from Amazon. So, you know, it, the idea that uh, we're, like you said, that we're all in it together is wrong. But, but uh, from, a, from a political point of view, uh, both, both parties or both sides, uh, if you engage in a political debate, um, agree at some level that uh, it's perfectly correct for for the authorities to suspend uh, constitutionally guaranteed liberties, at least here in the United States, are constitutionally guaranteed, and that those are emergency measures. But uh, those emergency measures end up uh, sticking around for years and years and years. The income tax was designed to be a temporary funding mechanism for World War One. So I think what we're trying to say is, um, especially when it comes to government spending and deficits, which in the end are highly destructive of the middle class in, in the sense that they inevitably result in inflation and, and in most cases the destruction of the currency of that government that's running those chronic deficits and huge debts, that there's these temporary justifications for exorbitant spending or unlimited government power to fight a virus are just completely misplaced and they're extremely damaging and in the long run will be far more damaging than any damage the virus would do should it run its course naturally. Mm. And I think it's, uh, it's important to point out uh, to people that it, the, the long run may not be as long as we think. I mean, it was, it was within a couple of generations that the country that I'm sitting in right now in, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, at the, the literal and metaphorical end of the world here, it was not so long ago in the 1950s that Argentina ranked, uh, you know, among the very richest of nations on just about any wealth measure that you that you choose to cite. So standard of living, you know, savings rates, et cetera, et cetera. And within, you know, 50, 60 years, we saw uh, the country cycle through a, a handful of different currencies, debasing one after the next, after the next. And you fast forward until 2020, nobody looks at this country and says, oh, to be rich like an Argentine, uh, you know, without 
making a very poor, poor taste joke. Um, and you know, this is just within a very, very short period of time that that, um, that that has occurred. So it's not like you can just spend ad infinitum and it's going to be, you know, you're centuries and centuries away. This, this, these things happen gradually until they don't. And then they happen very, very quickly. Yeah. Well, Americans don't have, uh, Americans who are alive, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to ones who are not, don't. <laughs> don't have any memory of a time where the country wasn't rich, powerful, and ha and seemingly had infinite resources. So again, what I mentioned earlier, that part of the limit of this is psychological. It's also generational that, you know, the old aphorism of uh, shirt sleeves to whatever it is, you know, you go from uh, rags to riches to rags within three generations. That's just the limit of people's memory. And if you don't have an actual memory of, of the destruction of middle-class savings due to hyperinflation and government deficits, then it's not something you worry about at night. I mean, in Germany, they still have uh, really high uh, savings rates and people still prefer cash because they have the most recent uh, industrial economy experience of hyperinflation. So that's, that's somehow embedded itself in their monetary culture, but we, we don't have that in the United States. So, so we've gone through this window where uh, it now looks to me like whoever wins, uh, whichever party controls Washington or Congress or the White House, there's going to be uh, unlimited spending, unlimited money, unlimited government. And it may take different forms. It could be deficit spending. It could be, um, it could be some version of modern monetary theory. It could be universal basic income. But what it, it doesn't really matter. Investors just need to realize that the political consensus is is around that idea and that will have consequences for all asset classes cash bonds equities real estate gold and you need to work through those so that you're not caught off guard when those consequences begin to manifest themselves and and what i'm saying is they have begun to the gold price going to 2000 up almost 25% in 60 days, that's a consequence. Um, Apple making, or, or the S&P making a new all-time high, and Apple being a trillion-dollar company, that's a consequence. Negative real yields in the U.S. bond market, that's a consequence. So, you know, these things are happening. They're, they're just not happening in a way that's obvious to ordinary investors about what it means, and, and that's what we're trying to to figure out in the newsletter. Mm. So to to continue following the money there, you, you mentioned a bunch of asset classes and, and we don't have the time, obviously, uh, in this quick uh, catch up to go through them all, but sticking just with uh, with gold uh, for the moment, you mentioned a 25% run up in 60 days. In, it, 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 do you see that as as uh, kind of temporarily overbought or you think just just grab it while you can and hang on because we're kind of, we're in for the long haul here. And, you know, if you can get it uh, at these, these temporary pullbacks, then you'll be, you'll be all the happier later for it. Yeah, I agree with the latter statement that, hmm. you know, the tendency for human beings is to your shiny things that are going up in price attract our attention. So that's, that's when we buy them. <laughs> and <Right>. it's normally, <laughs> Then normally they correct. So, you know, I didn't know uh, if gold would go much higher than 2000, but it's not surprising that it came down. What has surprised me 
in the last 60 days is that a lot of the three to four to five percent moves in gold and in silver have been to the upside not to mm -hmm. the downside and so you know once you look at the liquidity that's available in the precious metals market at least with respect to the publicly traded companies also when you look at it um at how many institutional investors or individual investors have any allocation to gold at all you realize not many people do and that there's just not that many places to put the money at least in the equity market those are very favorable long term for even a modest reallocation of portfolios toward safety toward less risk towards gold so from from a timing point of view it doesn't really matter to me what the price is as long as you're not you know you shouldn't be buying in an emotional panic that's every, the main thing to me so every time you see it on the front of the economist it's not the time to buy it. <laughs> no but and, and you know nowadays it's interesting because there's a there's a whole cottage industry of why gold's rally is false or why investors should avoid gold at these prices. Um, you just got to consider the source. And, and most of the people writing those stories don't own gold, I would say. Right. And I'd say most of them haven't been through a precious metals bull market before. And I would almost guarantee that nearly all of them have no understanding of gold's role in the monetary system or any understanding that what's going on is gold is rising in value relative to all paper money that's mm. underlying the bull market it's not because punters want to buy it or because the dollar is falling um strictly it's because uh there's this huge shift in uh money and uh, gold is money right and then of course uh, as kind of the ultimate protection not only against government uh, profligacy and their wanton use of the printing press but in times such as we're living through right now these these very strange times where governments like in victoria like in new zealand and very likely in uh, other countries to come when those states go on their full authoritarian kick and lock down the entire uh, you know, entire cities and, and whole populations, then having physical gold uh, in your hand, in your house, um, is is a, a very important safety hedge. Yeah, well, it, it's an interesting, it, you're right, and, but it's, an, it's also an interesting uh, thought experiment you have to put yourself in because government bonds have, for 700 years, enjoyed the... Uh, the designation of risk-free or that the interest rate on the most credit worthy government of the era is the, the risk-free rate. And uh, so you can lend your money or invest it in a 10 year, 20, 20 year, 30 year bond and your risk of not, not getting paid back is as low as it is anywhere else. Uh, your governments can pay interest through income taxes and they generally don't, well, as you know, in Argentina, some of them do <laughs> default. <laughs> well, that, so the, I guess that's to me the the the, the question now is: um, Are government bonds risk free, or uh, are, is it return free with plenty of risk? Mm, return free goes? risk, yeah. Return free risk, and then what 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 role does gold play in that? Because gold is not risk free either. You could. Uh, it can move up and down in price. It can uh, be confiscated. It can be outlawed. You can lose it. It can be stolen. You can forget where you buried it in your backyard. So you know, there are real risks uh, to owning it. But 
in terms of uh, uh, owning it as as a hedge against what's going on with these power mad governments who are using the pandemic as an excuse to run monstrous deficits and crush civil liberties. Uh, gold, you know, is highly attractive from the point of view that you, you can have it physically in your possession. You're going to sell it later for something, whether that's a new currency or or um, another asset, uh, and you know it's yeah that gives you that financial freedom is an aspect of personal freedom, and you know that's traditionally been part of the appeal of gold is that it, you know there's there's economic liberty and there's political liberty, and both of those liberties are under attack right now. So even if uh, you're not convinced that gold is the best way to preserve your economic and political independence, you better look for something because the attack is real and it's picking up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a, that's a, a very good line to end on there, Dan. Thanks very much for catching up with us today. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Stay well in the meantime. You too, Joel. See you later. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.